Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today is Valentine's Day, which makes it an extra special day to welcome best-selling romance novelist and former fashion editor Tia Williams to the show. I had the pleasure of talking with Tia on a Patreon-exclusive bonus episode of The Stacks Unabridged back in 2022. And today, Tia is here in the main feed to talk about her brand new romance novel, A Love Song for Ricky Wilde. The book follows an enchanting love story that develops between a free-spirited florist and a mystery musician in Harlem. The book is giving love, it is giving Black history, it's even giving a little mystery too. We talk today about the rules of romance, why Tia wanted to write about the Harlem Renaissance, how her love of pop culture is such a huge inspiration for her work, and the challenges of writing a faded mate's story. Don't forget, Dr. Uche Blackstock will join us on February 28th for our book club discussion of Viral Justice by Ruha Benjamin. Everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you like what you hear today on The Stacks, consider joining The Stacks Pack. That's our community for book lovers, which you can find at patreon.com slash The Stacks. By joining, you make it possible for me to make this independent podcast week in and week out. And you also get a bunch of perks for yourself, like our monthly virtual book club, access to our wonderful and very active Discord community, bonus episodes, shout outs on the show, and more. It is only $5 a month. So please head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. Here's a shout out for our newest members, Allison Savory, Colleen, Grace Pickering, Jacqueline Hills, Janet Kernich, Corey, Valerie Perez, and Jordan Conklin. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack. And thank you, as always, to the entire Stacks Pack. I could not make this show without you. All right, now it is time for my conversation with Tia Williams. All right, everybody. Today is Valentine's Day, which means we had to talk about romance. And there's only one person I want to talk about romance with, which is my favorite romance author, Tia Williams. Tia, welcome to the Stacks. Hi, thank you for having me. I love that I'm here on Valentine's Day. It feels appropriate. I mean, you released a book in February. I feel like maybe you had a hunch that you might get some Valentine's Day press. (laughs) So the book is the new one. It's called A Love Song for Ricky Wilde. It came out last week. It is, well, you know what? Why don't you tell people what it's about? And everybody listening, we're not going to spoil the book, okay? So don't worry. We've got your back. We're not going to spoil it. This book is easy to spoil, so we're going to try our very best to make sure that nothing is ruined for you. Tia, in 30 seconds or so, will you tell folks about the book? Yes. Okay. So it is about a free-spirited florist from the South who escapes her aristocratic family, moves to Harlem and opens a flower shop, which is her long, you know, her lifelong dream. And in Harlem, she comes across a very mysterious musician. It turns out that their lives are inextricably and mysteriously linked in all of these crazy ways. And there's voodoo and leap year magic. Um, And there's a touch of magical realism, which is new for me. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about that. So let's just start 
with the February 2024 of it all. The book takes place in February 2024 in a leap year, which, spoiler alert, everybody, this is a leap year for us as well. When you had the idea for this book, did you have to wait so that you could publish it in a leap year? Or did this come to you sort of organically and you were like, oh, wow, a leap year is coming. This is great. Because the way publishing works is it's not like you could have an idea and publish it the next day. So how are you thinking about the leap year magic of the book and then publishing? Well, it's funny. So it was always going to be now. It was always going to be 2024. That's when it was planned. You know, that's that's when the book was set. But my book was due like a year and a half ago, which means that <laughs> now last summer. So it it's just because I couldn't get my book finished in time that it ends up coming out at the right time. Mm. Otherwise, it was going to be, you know, like a summer book that took place in February. I see. This, yeah. I see. I thought you had done some like really serious like magic on your own end. Um, so this book isn't just strictly romance. There's some historical fiction. How were you researching it? How important to you was factual accuracy? We get a lot of like Harlem factoids, music factoids. What was your process for all of that? So within this love story, you know, there's a lot of elements. One of the elements is um, kind of this Harlem Renaissance backstory, this uh, scandal that takes place during the Harlem Renaissance that affects our main characters today. Um, so there's, I go back and forth and I, and I, as a longtime Harlem Renaissance and 1920s jazz age obsessive, I actually knew a lot of facts and, and the players and I knew who I wanted to be in it, you know, which real life Harlem Renaissance sort of icons I wanted to be in it. I knew which places, but what I didn't know was Harlem itself. And if you don't live in New York, this sounds crazy. I'm, I'm a Brooklyn girl. Harlem is so far away on the train. In my early 20s, I dated a guy and that lived in Harlem and it was a long distance relationship. Like that's how, so I'm not that familiar with Harlem and Harlemites aren't that familiar with Brooklyn. So I got on the train with a notebook and walked around Harlem for several weekends as a tourist, you know, just learning the streets, understanding the vibe. And while I was walking around, I would notice you know, you're on some random street and then you'll see the tiniest, most nondescript plaque on the side of a building. Like, oh yeah, Billie Holiday sang here when she was 14 in 1929 and that's where she was discovered. And I was so inspired by the idea that you could be walking around the city. All old cities are like this, really. There's a, it's almost like Pompeii. There's a city on top of a city. There's all this magic around us that we're not, we don't have to be aware of if we're not looking. And I wanted to bring that, you know, the past sort of moves with us kind of feeling in the book. And so, yeah, the, and also the fun thing when I was walking around Harlem, I had a map of Harlem Renaissance speakeasies and nightclubs. Mm. And so I the addresses of all of these places and see what they were now. And it's like, oh, my God, how could this famous speakeasy now be a Walgreens? It's just wild, you know? So, Yeah. That's so crazy. I mean, that's what's really fun about the book is like the way that the Harlem Renaissance moments kind of come in in 2024. Um, With the music stuff, there's all these like little stories about songs that we love and know. Are those all real stories? Uh, No. Okay. So here's, (laughs) without trying to spoil, um, there's someone in the book who has been involved with a lot of the making of famous pop music, you know, famous pop songs um, in history. And each song, you know, whether it's Shaka Khan's Ain't Nobody or, you know, a Chuck Berry song, I include these stories about how they were made. And that's just, frankly, me being a behind-the-music obsessive. That's me on my 16th birthday asking for this billboard encyclopedia of all the number one hits since Billboard started recording them. So it was like 1953 or something, Rock Around the Clock. And on each each song got a two-page spread and this explanation, what was happening in pop culture that influenced the song? 
what the writer was thinking when they wrote it, how long the song charted, like all these trivia. And I, when I tell you, I had, I have that whole book memorized. And so up till 1992, I had all the number ones that had ever been recorded um, memorized. And I just love knowing like the nuggets behind a song who was the muse. So I made up a lot of that stuff and I'm happy to hear that it sounded real because yeah, I, I really enjoy finding out stories behind songs. It totally sounded real because that's the kind of stuff you like find when you watch like a documentary. It'll be like, oh, and then this like random person did this or they were wearing these like purple shoes and you're like, that's so weird. And then you find out the backstory that they were made, you know, so it definitely felt real. I was trying to do research before this conversation and like trying to Google like, what's the story behind Ain't Nobody? And I was like, I cannot find it because how do you search for that situation? Like, it's like impossible. Um, Right. So it was fun for me too, but I was like, I just got to ask her. I'm sure it's either real or it's not. Um, <laughs> um, how have you found, like, so part of this book also takes place during the Harlem Renaissance. And I'm wondering how you found trying your hand at sort of the historical fiction part of it. Did you find it hard to find your voice in another era? Because you write so, like, I feel like you're so current with your references and your slang and your pop culture. And I can tell that's because you love pop culture. Clearly, you've mentioned like so many things that you love already. But did you find it challenging to kind of tap into that authenticity of a previous time? That's such an interesting question. And absolutely not. Because I'm so well versed in the 20s. And it's such a pop culture time that I could have the exact same voice then that I do now. You know, the movie stars that were at the speakeasies, the songs that were that people were listening to, the cars they were driving. I knew, you know, the designers they were wearing. It's the same kind of talk that I talk just, <laughs> you know, with different references. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I just I'm, fa- I'm fascinated because I think in the last like few years, some of my favorite authors have written their first like historical fiction. And I'm really fascinated by that choice and and what that like where that desire comes from to kind of switch it up. Are, were you feeling like, I just want to try something different? Were you feeling like you just had to write about the Harlem Renaissance? Or is there something like for authors about trying a, a new thing that feels like, I don't know, like an obligation or like a right? Like I, I, I've made it. I'm going to go back in time. For me, it just, I, I love thinking about who we would be if we were dropped into a different era. Mm. You know, my parents were teenagers in the 60s and I used to be obsessed with the 60s. Like, what would it have been like to, you know, listen to Motown and go to these like basement parties? And, you know, I've always been interested in the idea that people have always been people, even in these like black and white times that, you know, don't really feel real to us because they're not in color or we don't have, you know enough footage of, you know, that time. Um, luckily in the twenties, we obviously had movies and photography and, um, but I wanted to see if I could have the same sort of vibrancy in a time that I have no relationship with, but it's something that I've always done privately. Like I've, um, one of the first books I wrote, which has never seen the light of day was like, a reconstruction era love story that on purpose had absolutely nothing to do with Jim Crow or um, the fact that everyone's parents had been enslaved people. It was only a love story between two people who were of this time. And I honestly did the exact same thing. I, you know, what were people listening to? What was like the hot song? What was the, you know, what were people wearing? How were the girls wearing their hair? Like, and it's the same always. Yeah. That's that part of your process is like, that's what anchors you to your characters. It does. I have to know what they look like. I have to know what they, I have to understand like the full 360 of how they move through the world. Yeah. I love that. For me, that comes from being a beauty editor, you know, working in magazines. Like you have to place everything in, you know, what color cheek was she wearing? Like what, you know, design, like those things really tell you so much about, you know, was it Zara or was it, you know, Dolce and Gabbana, God forbid, you know, <laughs> probably shouldn't have said that. But um, yeah, you know, it tells you a lot about 
how someone moves in the world. When we talked last time for the bonus episode, we talked about seven days in June and we talked about a lot about your past as a beauty editor. And and one of the things that you said that sticks with me now, especially when I read magazines, is how it helped you be a better novelist and romance novelist specifically because there are those sort of rules in romance because you had to describe coral lipstick every season and say it differently. And like you had to find a way to make a bold cat eye new again, even though a bold cat eye is not new. That is standard makeup practices. And I thought about that a lot when reading this book, because I think for me, like what you get so right as a as the kind of reader that I am is that I believe that your characters like each other. Like, I don't believe that it's situational and they need to like each other because it's a romance novel. I actually believe that these people are drawn to each other and they're a good fit. And I think as I was reading this, I was thinking a lot about how, you know, you explained that that helped you kind of flesh out your writing. And I guess that's not really a question, but just sort of knowing that about you made this book even more enjoyable because I was like, right, she really is like fitting those pieces together. And this was actually really hard because it's a faded mates mm. romance. Uh, if we're talking tropes, like that's that, that's the trope. And when you get a couple that's like faded to be together, the fun is in convincing the reader that these people belong together, making a case for them. But if the case is already made, you could slip into lazy writing and not really try to build those connections and be like, okay, this is why they like each other. Cause you really don't have to do that because we know that it's magically faded. Right. Yeah. I had to work extra hard the whole time to be like, okay, but am I resting on this fate thing? Like I really have to show that they like each other and whether or not they were faded, like that doesn't even matter if they met each other at, you know, the bodega, it would be them. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like you did really get to that. I I just really liked them. So I was like really rooting for them. <laughs> I I don't know. There's something about like as an as a new to romance person and a sort of a reluctant romance reader, it's really hard for me because a lot of times I'm just told I'm supposed to like these people because they like each other. But I actually really liked these people separate. And you spend a lot of time in this book, not in a romance. Yeah, that's true. Do you worry about that at all? Because I, as a non-romance person, though I'm I'm not a non-romance person, I'm just a new romance person. I get a lot of pushback from romance readers when I talk about certain books and I call it a romance and they're like, that's not a romance. And as I was reading this book, I was like, people are going to be mad at her because we don't get to the romance till late. When we get to it, it's all romance all the way. But there's a like 90 pages or something where it's really just focused on our our lead, Ricky. Is that something that you're sort of playing with? Do you know that about like your reader or is that just how this story needed to be told for you? No, I think it's just the way it needed to be told for me. And yeah, romance readers are are very particular. And the but the biggest thing is that, you know, is there a happy ending? Because that's really the definition of a romance. If you're if your couple doesn't have an HEA, happily ever after, then it isn't a romance. And so Ricky and Ezra do. And I think that it's important, like you were saying before, you know, to to build the case for the characters, to show that they like each other, to show who they are, to show why they're so right for each other. That takes a lot of character building and world building. And I wanted this book to feel epic. I wanted it to feel grand. I thought it was worth taking the time to feel it all out and understand the two worlds that they come from. Because in my head, it was always like a like an epic saga, you know, and those don't happen in 180 pages. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I just 
I think because I've been harassed by romance readers, even though I'm like so like I'm like, why are you wasting your time on me? I don't know anything. I'm like, it must be really hard for romance authors because romance readers are serious. And I understand that a lot of it comes from the fact that people shit on romance so much. So they're protective of their thing. And I respect that because I am particular about the things that I'm very passionate about. But I'm also like, this is a tough crowd. It really is. Yeah. You you've got to they have to make sure that they have all their elements, you know? Yeah. And, and you do want to protect the stuff that you love. And there's also, you know, in the romance community right now, like there's a lot of sort of controversy about books that aren't romance being labeled as romance because there happens to be like a love story, but it's like a, you know, it's the third most important thing, or maybe there isn't a happily ever after or all of a sudden the romance books are being categorized as rom-coms, but there's no comedy. So, you know, they're, they're very particular about, you know, getting the, the genre um, beats correct. Yeah. I want to ask you about the rom-com thing, but I want to ask it to you about your cover. Because mm. a thing that I see in romance covers is the cartoon thing. It's everywhere. Every romance book looks like a rom-com or a YA book these days. I don't know enough to know why, but I do know that when I see your cover that has two flesh humans, <laughs> black people, their faces, you also have black people on the cover of Seven Days in June. You have black people, and I'm saying people as opposed to drawings, photos, I guess is a better way to say it. What is the thinking behind that for you? It's clearly different than what the trend is right now. Why is that important to you? Is it important to you or does your publisher just like it? Like, what's the deal? Because it's like, I just got an email from Goodreads that was like, books coming out and it had five romances and it was all drawings and then this cover. And I was like, that's different. This is a tough one. Um, I think it's just, I prefer these. I, I don't know. People love the the illustrated covers it's a, it's a signal, you know, you sort of know what you're getting though. A lot of them are pretty misleading. Like, you know, there's some extremely high steam, you know, <laughs> books and they look like they're going to be a lifetime movie. And it's like, Whoa, that's, that's not, it's a very pleasant surprise, but it's not what you would assume. I don't know. It's just my taste goes more towards uh, realistic. My my daughter, who's 15, gives me shit about this all the time. She's like, and she lives in Barnes and Noble, and she's always just like, your covers, you should have the animated, they should be illustrated. You know, um, I don't know. For me, it's just a matter of this is what I gravitate towards. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like it. It's a book for adults. I like seeing adults. I think that the cartoons look young, and I think that it's misleading also, like, that like young people, not that I care that young people read about sex because like, hello, we're young people. We were reading, like when we were young, we were reading about sex too. But I do think it like sort of like, can I think sometimes it can make sex and romance and relationships seem like more juvenile than it is. Or like in, in a similar way that people shit on romance, it's sort of like is self-deprecating to me in a little, a little bit like that we can't just be like, look, this book is about sex and there's people who have sex and it's not like cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, you know, it goes in waves. Like yeah. 80s and 90s, we have the clinch covers with the, you know, the course and Fabio and all of that. And, you know, then chiclet happens and everything is pastel and it's, there's got to be a shoe on the cover. It's Sex and the City. It's, you know, and, and then there was the just a photograph of a man with abs. <laughs> And now we're back to, you know, and now we're, we're, we're illustrated. Yeah. I mean, and there's so much, so many, like if you go on book Twitter and book talk, like the debates about this are intense, you know, either you love these covers and you are going to fight for them or you want to burn them all. So it's hard to tell like what, you know, what's going to resonate with a reader. And, and that's why for me, I stick to what what I know I like and hope that people, you know, find it. Yeah. I think it's such an interesting debate, especially like as a sort of outsider to the community. Like I'm just so fascinated because it signals certain things to me that it probably doesn't signal or does signal to a, like a 
serious romance reader as a person. And I read a lot of nonfiction. So I'm always drawn to books with photos on the cover. That's my personal taste. Like if you show me like a burning building and then words over it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to read that. Like that's just my my taste because I also like a, you know, <laughs> I love you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I love those too. Yeah. But the other part of this cover is that you have two black people and you have two black people who are the center of your romance. And that's also true for seven days in June. And I think sometimes like I, when I look at romances, I see, oh, it's a black romance, but then it's an interracial couple or something, or they only put the black character on the cover, but they don't put the white character on the cover. And I think that's like, I don't know if that's a thing, but it feels like a thing that I've noticed. I don't, I don't know if you can shed light on that at all. Well, that's another big debate that's happening in the community as well. Like, that there's so many interracial romances that are billed as black romances because the woman is black or um, I think it all comes down to readers really just wanting to understand what they're getting. And I think probably if, if there's, you know, a simple, just a black woman on a cover and it's an interracial romance, it's probably something that readers would like to know when they pick up the book, but yeah. I love to celebrate black love. You know, I grew up not seeing it on, you know, reflected in media very often at all. And certainly not in the genres I was reading. Like I was a massive glamour fic girl. So it was Jackie Collins and Judith Krantz and some Daniel Steele, but she wasn't sassy enough for me. (laughs) Um, But those were my, yeah, like give me a super glam heroine and a kick-ass job with a lot of money. And she has a salacious romance. Like I I love that stuff. And I was like, how come there's no black people in these books? When I, my aunts are out here living this life, you know what I mean? Like, so that I've always wanted to represent that. So yeah, I've only so far written books with two black people that may change. Um, But yeah, that's what I like to focus on. I love that so much. Okay, wait, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we are back. I have to know how you name your characters. There are so many good names in this book. How do you come up with them? Were these characters always with these names when you started writing this book? Or do you have like placeholder names? Did you change things? Like we have Ezra Breeze Walker. We have Ricky Wilde. We have Miss Della, who is the most perfect character ever. And then we have Rashida Ray, Regina Rashida Ray. Is that right? The right order? Uh, We have the sisters. You know, I'm just like, how are you coming up with these people? In your last book, Eva Mercy, we had, you know, like just really good name. Audrey, the daughter. Ugh. Mm. So like, how right. do you do it? I take it so seriously. I can tell. So like when a person is born is really important to me, you know, in terms of a name. So like with, so Ricky's sisters are my age. And so I'm thinking of, you know, names of girls that I knew growing up, names of people that were in my third grade class. You know what I mean? That kind of people that are my contemporaries. Because names, honestly, like the, okay. In this podcast, I'm sounding so insane because every five minutes I'm like, as a obsessive of this thing. Oh, but as an obsessive of this other thing, I'm I'm obsessed with too many things. But I follow all these like name experts on TikTok. There are actually people that you can hire to name your baby. Like you tell them what your vibe is. You tell them, or like if like if you have twins, you can say this is you know this is what I I, I want like a modern contemporary name or I want like an old fashioned sound anyway. So I follow them and I'm really interested in that. But anyway, so like with her sisters, they're my age. So I grew up with Rashida. Look, Rashida Jones. That's who I thought they're, of. Yeah, Regina Hall and Regina King. Like these are these are names that I, and I knew a Ray in eighth grade and I thought it was just like the coolest name for a girl like Ray. Um, and Ray Don Chong. I don't know if you remember her. She was a, a fabulous eighties actress and Ricky seemed more, seemed like a younger name. Ricky seemed like the youngest. Um, and also she, they thought he was going to be a boy. She was going to be a boy. And so she's named after her dad, Richard. So, I love that little, that little moment. Yeah. And then with, you know, Della, she's 90, what, six, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I got super into researching what were, you know, what were the cool names almost a hundred years ago. And, you know, my favorite thing was naming her husband because I got really into old black man names. And I was just thinking of like all the old, like, you know, all my great uncles and stuff, you know, names like Percival or, you know what I mean? Or like Lucius. Yes. So I was all of these, you know, elder black man names. It's just, it's fun. Yeah. I love it. I love it. It's so, it, it's so fun to read. Cause I'm like, Oh, I know exactly who that person is. You have a character named Tuesday and she's a former child actor. And I was like, of course she is. And I named her Tuesday because my mom for reasons unknown can't say Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday is Tuesday. That's amazing. I have a mother who says nothing correctly. My whole life. I thought that it was a hotel. Apparently, it's a hotel. I did not find that out till I went to college when I was saying, oh, my mom, we got to go to my mom's hotel. And people were like, what are you saying? And I'm from California. Like, we're not like Southern, you know, like sometimes like certain regionalisms, like you say things different. No, hotel, motel. I was going to ask you where she's from. That's funny. She's from Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> I got to ask you, though, what's the har- what was the hardest part for you about writing this book? And then what came really easily? The hardest part. The hardest part, like I said before, was trying to make sure that I wasn't resting on the fact that they're faded. You know, that was hard because if that's looming in the background, you know, it can just seem like, well, this was supposed to happen anyway. Like, you know, you've just shown up in a story and you've been told that these people are supposed to be together instead of being shown that they're supposed to be together. How do you know if you're resting? Like, is that something between you and your editor? Is that something when you read it back and you're like, I haven't made this point enough? Like, how do you as the creator know 
that what you've done previously isn't what it needs to be. I think that's when having a great editor really helps. My editor, Seema Mahanian, was so good at this. You know, she would put in a note like, okay, but what were they feeling in this moment? Like, why, when he said that, did that trigger something in her? Why did that make him fall more in love with her in this moment? And she really pulled the emotion out that made it feel really real. Um, Yeah, great editor is key. Everyone needs one. Yeah. And then your other question. What came easily? um, The dialogue. Mm. Always my favorite thing. I love zippy, witty, bantery dialogue. So those those are my favorite parts. I like that. Is there anything that's not in the book that you wish was? So many Harlem Renaissance characters that I wanted to write more about. Like Gladys Bentley, who was this famous drag king. And she was one of, she might have been the first woman to, first Black woman to run her own club, nightclub, you know. And she was such a, a, a huge fixture on the scene and so important to queer history. But, you know, there's only so much time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, and you have, and you also have the constraint of like, we have to stay, you know, with yeah. these people. Like we can't get too in the weeds. Um, totally which I think is hard, like a hard part about romance for sure. And you're really busy. You're everywhere. I feel like you are a really busy person. How do you make time to write? This is always a tough question because it's not, it's, if you want to write, you write. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, this is the question I have for people who work out. You really wake up at five in the morning to run? What? And it seems impossible to me because that's not, something that I do. I mean, I wish I could, but I, I obviously don't prioritize it because if I did, I would wake up at four and I would run. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of if this is important to you, you fucking do it. Like, even if you have to stay up later than everyone else in your house or get up before everyone else in your house in my, in, in my life, it's stay up later. I, I write the best when everyone is asleep. How late? Well, I just turned in a book on Monday and it, I turned it in at 530 a.m. But it's good. It feels like you're sneaky, like you're getting away with something, like you're stealing time, like everyone's sleeping, but you're at work. I don't know. Somehow that really, really works for me. I know some some early morning writers that feel the same way on that side of things. For me, it's staying up later. People, I, I hear that a lot from people on the show, either early morning or late at night. Um, yeah. But then when do you sleep? Well, I have the privilege of finally having a kid in high school who can take herself to school, who is old enough to ride the train to school and get home by herself. And so I can sleep till noon and it's fine. You know, my husband on the days he has to go into the office, peeks his head in, you know, but I don't have to get up for anyone anymore, which is amazing. I wish that I was there. I have four-year-olds, so I am in the extreme must-be-awake-the-moment-you-are-awake phase. But one day, one day, I too will send my children away from me and I will lay in bed like a queen. In addition to writing late at night, do you have other things that you're particular about in your writing habits? Like how many hours a day do you write every day? Are you more of a free spirit? Do you play music? Do you have snacks and beverages, rituals, candles? Tell us about it. I have rituals. They are so tacky, but this is what it is. It's Reese's Pieces and it's Real Housewives of either New York, Beverly Hills, or Atlanta. And this is why. I have seen these seasons so many times that it's just like verbal wallpaper almost. And it just feels like white noise hearing these women yap away and throw tables and yell at each other. I love it. I love it. They're my friends. I've known them for 15 years. It's fabulous. Um, So instead of music, the housewives are sweet music to my ears. Reese's Pieces, not the cups. I sit at the dining table, not my desk. And yeah, that's about it. I don't, set an expectation for writing every day because I have chronic migraines and they're, you know, that makes my schedule. If I make a schedule that makes it very hard to keep. So instead of that, I look at a week and I say, I have to write five chapters 
whenever those five chapters come is up to you, ma'am, but they have to be done by Sunday. So that feels more feasible for me. Yeah. I've always wondered this about romance authors because y'all be churning out books, a lot of them quickly. What is the timeline for a romance novel? Because I know it's got to be different than these literary fiction where it takes some authors like eight years to write a book. I'm like every year there's something. So what is that timeline look like? It's really, really hard. And, you know, it is an honor to have even readers that want your books every year. But we research just as much as literary fiction does. We could write literary fiction. Could they write us? No. (laughs) Yeah. It definitely feels like it's a trade-off that it's like there is a voracious, Mm -hmm. rabid, excited, enthusiastic audience for romance in a way that like if you write a romance novel and it is good or even like, okay, people will put eyes on it. They might not like it. They might not read your next thing, but there is that community. Whereas with literary fiction, I think, you know, that's not there. Like there's not, you know, I happen to be in the book community, so I do know there's a small community, but it's not like romance. It's neat. And the thing is, they will read your next book if they loved your last book. You know, it is really a dedicated community. It's wonderful. Um, you know, your your goal is to be a, what do they call it? Um, not auto-buy. Yeah, auto-buy. You know, that you this person comes out with a book and you don't even know what it's about and you buy it. And, you know, every time you write, you hope that you're convincing someone that you're good enough to be that for them. Yeah. It's, I love our community. I do. Yeah. I mean... It's interesting, I guess, because you could probably speak to this because your last book was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. And I mean, I think everyone listening to the show knows that being picked for a celebrity book club is huge for an author and a book, and it gets it out to new audiences. But when you come from a romance community and you come from a place where people have certain expectations, was it challenging being brought out to a new audience at all? Like having to deal with people like me who picked the book up, not really knowing a lot about romance and being like, what's happening? Like, you know, is that challenging for you kind of like stepping outside? I think I would assume ultimately it's great because more people are reading your book and more people are welcomed into the fold, but also you're probably getting different feedback outside of maybe what you're used to. It isn't challenging because like you said, the more eyes on you, the better. It's so exciting to have people, you know, who aren't familiar with you, aren't familiar with the genre, to have them kind of be recruited as a result of something you wrote. It's really exciting. What kind of makes me go a little bit is the amount of people that are like I don't even like romance but I look like it it's like not not the flex you think it is to do that you know and it makes me um watch myself now when I talk about certain genres or like something I'm watching on tv or you know I don't I don't really like true crime but this I like it's why put it down? And also, here's some news. If you like this, then you do like it. <laughs> right. That's okay. I mean, I you heard me say that earlier in this conversation. I've been working on that too, because it's not that I don't like romance. I'm just new to romance. So I'm still figuring out what I like. But my gut is to say, oh, I don't like romance. But that's not true. I do. I like your books. Like, I, I think I I think what it is is that I like books that sort of play with the genre a little bit more. And I think that's true for almost every kind of book I like, regardless of genre. I don't really like, except for like straight, true, reported nonfiction, I do really like like old white guys just like telling me the story that happened. But aside from that, like I really liked, you know, the Aquake Mezzi romance novel that I know is controversial because that played with like, what is a happy ending? Like, what is a love story? What is a central? Like, so for me, that was fun, but I do have to constantly course correct and stop saying I'm not a romance reader because it's not true. There's a specific type of romance that you like or that, you know, and that's really what you're saying. It's, it's interesting. It is that like urge, like put it down sort of like, oh, I don't like this thing. That's the 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 kind of 
I don't want to say red flags is not that deep, but that's always kind of what I think. Like, you don't have to put it down to say that you like this book. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Um, success. And the only way I know it is from cheerleading, S-U-C-C-E-S-S. <laughs> I can't, if every time I write it, that's what I'm going through in my head. <laughs> I love that. Um, did you always want to be a writer? Yes, always. There was never any other option. Did you always want to write romance? Yeah, it wasn't, that wasn't an option either. You know, Stephen King, I I say this, but Stephen King said that, you know, he has, he wrote this great book on writing, which is like, yeah. Um, And he was like a horror writer, a comedy writer, a, a Western writer could, you know, drive past a car wreck and see it all through a completely different lens and write a completely different story about what they're looking at. And my lens has always been love stories, always no matter what. And I'm always thinking about it anyway, like walking along the street, you know, walking down the street, I look at people and I'm like, oh, you know, second date, you know, I, I'm always thinking about the, you know, when I meet people older than me that are in a relationship, I always want to know how they met, what's keeping them together, you know, or I try to decide on my own. Oh, they're together for the kids. Girl, divorce him. Go find someone who loves you correctly. You know what I mean? I'm always that's always where my mind has gone. That's so interesting. I love that. I love that. I, it's something that I've picked up on sometimes, as I mentioned, I read a lot of nonfiction, is sometimes I can feel nonfiction writers writing through a lens of genre, like essay collections. And I love that. Yeah, they totally do. All the time. You can see it. You can pick it up when you're reading nonfiction, like what their vibe is, yeah. what they're inspired by, you know. Well, let me ask you that to you. What are you reading? What are you inspired by? So as I was saying, I was just turned in a book on Monday. So I haven't really been reading a lot because when I read, when I write, I start sounding like whoever I'm reading. But just in general, like the, the, the well that I'm dipping into now is like con artists. Anything having to do with grifters and scammers and con artists, I am obsessed with. I love The Guest by Emma Klein that came out last year. I'm watching Griselda right now about Griselda Blanco, who I've always been interested in anyway because of cocaine cowboys and all that. But I'm just like, like the balls on this woman. Like, who are these people that are just like, yeah, elect me. I, I can I can do all this. I can make all this happen. I can go to sleep and not be scared for my life or scared that I'm going to be found out, you know? Yeah. I have two book recommendations for you based on this information. One is nonfiction. It's the Patrick Radden Keefe book, Rogues. It's an essay collection. And each essay is about a different... It's like the subtitles like con artists, scammers, and bad people. It's phenomenal. But the other okay. one is a forthcoming book. It comes out in July. It's okay. a little bit of a wait, but it's Danzy Senna's new book, Colored Television. Okay. It's not fully scammers, but it has definitely got that like people walking into the room with a kind of confidence where you're like, bitch, where, who are you? Like, what is going on? And she writes that tension. So I think I tell people she writes thrillers, but about not high stakes things. Like, she, yeah. you know, like it's like there's no murder. There's no like credit card fraud. There's no, you know, stolen children. It's like, I'm trying to get a book published, but the stakes are just like insanely high. It's so good. Oh, I love it. Okay, I'm going to pre-order. Yeah, it's so yeah. good. It's so good. It's not out for a while, but it, I'm obsessed with her. She's like really speaks to my heart. So, okay, so you turned in a book. Can you tell us anything about it? So if anyone who's listening has read Seven Days in June, they're, the main character has a 12-year-old daughter who is very precocious. Um, and so the book I just turned in is a YA novel about that character, Audrey, but she's 16. It's the summer after junior year in high school. And um, she realizes that she's all the things, you know, she's checked off all the boxes. She's president of the class. She's the president of debate club. She's this, she's that, but she doesn't know how to have fun. So she hires this guy that goes to a rival high school to teach her how to have fun for the summer. Ah! 
I'm so excited. I love that character so much. I'm so excited. Um, for people who love a love song for Ricky Wilde, what are some books you might recommend to them that are in conversation with what you did here? Definitely Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns, um, which is about, there's uh, it's several stories about people who lived through the Great Migration. And that's where Ezra's story came from. Zora and Langston, or maybe it's called Langston and Zora. It's like, it's a historical fiction based on their very, very volatile, fabulous, you know, relationship. It's a really good one. And there's a movie called Dead Again, which really inspired this sort of back and forth structure with um, oh, Kenneth Branagh. And I can't remember the woman, his wife. She won an Oscar. Anyway, um, it's called Dead Again. And it's these two people who meet in present day, but they realize that their relationship is like a repeat of something that has happened before in the 40s. It's um, Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson. I'm like, hello. Yeah. And they and did this, much they, ado about nothing together. They did a lot together. Yeah. I can't. Oh, I didn't. I, sorry, Emma. It's okay. It's okay. Don't worry. We all forget people. I can't remember any. I just watched Oppenheimer and he's in it. And I was like, who is that man? I know that man. And then I had to Google it. Um, okay. Here is my last question for you. If you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Oh, I love that question. Feels extra fitting for this book. Uh, Adelaide Hall, the showgirl. Um, she was one of the first black showgirls on Broadway. She was a huge Harlem Renaissance fixture. She's actually in the book. So I would like for her and a character is named after her in the book. So I think it would be cool if she read it just to see if she would think that I got the error right. I love that. All right, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. A love song for Ricky Wilde is out in the world now. You can get it wherever you get your books. If you have not read Seven Days in June, may I also recommend that. You can also read A Perfect Find, which has a screen adaptation too. There's lots of Tia Williams. If you read the book and you love it, you have plenty of reading to do. Tia, thank you so much for being here. This was so fun. I love talking to you anytime. Thank you for having me. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Tia Williams for joining the show. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Cameron Nessa and Andy Dodds for helping to make this conversation possible. Reminder, Dr. Uche Blackstock will be back on the stacks on February 28th to discuss our book club pick, Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. If you love this show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.